All right, let's take our Bibles tonight and go to Matthew chapter number 5. Matthew chapter number 5 tonight. And we're going to be beginning our look at the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, so in many ways, this will be primarily an introductory uh, message tonight, dealing with uh, kind of an overall view of the sermon itself and also kind of laying some of the groundwork uh, for the basis of the whys and the how of this particular sermon uh, that our Lord preached there upon that mountaintop. You'll recall that the fourth chapter uh, closed uh, by telling us those last two verses there in verses 24 and 25. It says, And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought him unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and from Judea, and from beyond Jordan. Many people have wondered and asked the question, why did the Lord perform all of these miracles before He delivered this great, what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, we could speculate, we could ask questions why, and, but we know that the Lord, for whatever reason, this is when it was given. But we should note that, remember, that these instances of healing uh, were not just random. Uh, there was a purpose in every healing event that Jesus uh, every, every healing that Jesus was a part of. Uh, the miracles of those healings, remember, had come after Jesus had taught in the synagogues and after he had preached the gospel of the kingdom. So even the healings did not begin until after Jesus had taught and preached the gospel. We learned that back in Matthew 4.23. Second of all, these miracles of healing were a part of the essential messianic credentials. In other words, these were the things that Jesus was doing to further confirm that he was, in fact, the Messiah. We read about those in Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 6. So these miracles, again, of healing were not random. Thirdly, these miracles of healing uh, were made their way for the fuller uh, revelation of the gospel and for the further revelation of the message of the kingdom. But it would also dispose people to more listen to him. The man who could display such power and could display such mercy, uh, he, they would be more likely to listen to his message. Now, when we refer to the Sermon on the Mount, we, we are dealing with a large portion of the book of Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount covers chapters 5, 6, and 7. So this is not a small amount of material. Uh, it is impossible to teach the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount in one or two or three. Uh, you're talking about there are so many topics within the Sermon on the Mount uh, that this, is, this alone is going to take us quite a while. Uh, we're going to be spending, I'm just going to tell you now, we're going to be spending months, months on the Sermon on the Mount by the time we get all the way through this. So we need to understand that what Jesus is teaching in this great sermon uh, is, is uh, been commented on by uh, many 
uh, pastors and commentators and theologians over the years, and there are some who say that of everything that Jesus ever spoke, of every message that he ever preached, this has got to be the pinnacle of it. This has to be the very high point of what he had to say. And you'll notice as we look at some of the, just some of the introductory material that's here, you'll notice that this sermon is introduced almost without really any pomp and any circumstance. In other words, the scripture doesn't tell us that, uh, that the, the land, the towns had to get ready for Jesus because he was coming into town. We simply see the preface of this sermon or the introduction of this sermon. And it, it says, verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 1, says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Now we'll stop there. That's the preface. And we say this, this is really nothing too, it's nothing too remarkable. Well, the preface or the introduction of a sermon is often what sets the, sets the guidelines for where the sermon is going. The boundaries or the guidelines for this is actually seen in the audience, it's seen in the place, and in the, 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 the words that are being spoken. Uh, these are very brief, two verses. But there are several things that we need to really consider. There's, there are a number of things we need to consider. First of all, I want you to notice the place where this sermon was preached. This sermon was not preached in a synagogue. It wasn't preached in a town square. It wasn't preached in a place where normally there would be a great audience. But rather, it tells us that it was up in a mountain. This mountain is where Jesus ascends to preach this sermon. Now, we know the story of our Lord. He did not have a place to lay his head down, much less did he have a place to preach. Jesus did not, was not an itinerant preacher in the sense that he, didn't, he wasn't welcomed into towns and he wasn't put up for the night. He wasn't given, given lodging. He would go from place to place. Now, remember that the, the teachers of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees, would teach in the synagogues and they would teach in these very elaborate synagogues. As a matter of fact, there would be a, a chair that was set up at the very front of these synagogues and that's the chair that those scribes and Pharisees would sit down upon to teach the law. Jesus here, his sermon is preached on a mountaintop. Think about this, the Pharisees and the scribes were preaching and teaching that which was corrupting, and Jesus was preaching that which was truth. Oh, they got all the glory and the pomp and the circumstance. They were the ones seated in the high place. They were, they were seated in the chair that was recognized as the expert and the authority in what the Scriptures actually had to say. Jesus is preaching sitting on a mountaintop. There's really nothing substantial about it from the human perspective. However, the fact that Jesus is preaching on a mountaintop is not just a coincidence and it shouldn't be easily ignored. As I was preparing this week, I came across a, a quote that Matthew Henry made about the significance of Jesus preaching from this mountain. 
He said, nor was it one of the holy mountains, nor one of the mountains of Zion, but a common mountain, by which Christ would intimate that there is no distinguishing holiness of place now. Under the gospel, as there was under the law, but that it is the will of God that men should pray and praise everywhere, anywhere, provided it be decent and convenient. Christ preached this sermon, which was an exposition of the law upon a mountain, because upon a mountain the law was given. And this was also a solemn declaration of the Christian law. But observe the difference. When the law was given, the Lord came down upon the mountain. Now the Lord went up into one. Then he spoke in thunder and lightning, now in a still, small voice. Then the the people were ordered to keep their distance. Now they are invited to draw near. What a blessed change. You see, when the law was given on Mount Sinai, the people were told, you can't come up this mountain. Remember in the Old Testament, you you cannot approach. Jesus now, seated upon this common mountain, invites people to come. So we notice that there is some great significance, not only to the place where Christ delivered this sermon, but we need to remember that it is deeply significant. Oftentimes we note throughout Scripture the place where a particular message or a particular expression is spoken. Oftentimes the greatest way of interpreting what's being spoken is based upon the location. In other words, in Matthew 13, 36, we're told about Christ entering into the house. That particular house, he makes known unto his own people the very inner secrets of his kingdom. In other words, it was a place of revelation to them. In Luke's gospel, we see Christ is seen as the perfect man among men, and he delivers a sermon in Luke 6.17 that simply says he delivered it in the plain. It was something very simple, but very, very powerful and spoke with great authority. But it was spoke on a very common level. Now, there is a significance to the common mountaintop and Jesus' common speaking. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the most practical of sermons that we hear all throughout Scripture. It's common because it uses common language. It also uses common events and common troubles that are still true to this day. There are still things that Jesus spoke about that are even the very controversies of our world today. Now we're going to get into the background of the real purpose of the Sermon on the Mount and the significance of what it signifies But again, I want you to notice that Matthew, as he pens this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he has Jesus' authority in view. Every one of the Gospels pictures Jesus in a different capacity. Matthew pictures Jesus in his authority. Authority matters. Authority matters especially when it is seen in an elevated place. Jesus is upon this mountain. We see other instances where Jesus was upon a mountain that are deeply significant. In Matthew 17, we read about the transfiguration. That is up upon a mountaintop. 
In Matthew 24, 3, he delivers a great prophetic discourse there. In Matthew 28, 6, we see the conqueror of death giving the great commission. He gave the great commission on a mountaintop to his disciples. So here in verse 1, we see there's a deeply significant fact that Jesus ascends to a mountain when he's about to give forth the proclamation of his kingdom. This isn't random, folks. He doesn't go to this mountain just randomly. There's a purpose why he goes to this mountaintop. So the place where Christ delivers the sermon is deeply significant. Next, I want you to see what seems to be insignificant to many is the posture in which our Lord preached this sermon. It tells us that when he was set or seated. Now, this seems to be, studying the life of Jesus, this seems to be his usual manner of preaching is when he is seated. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 26, 55, Jesus says these words, I sat daily with you teaching in the temple. Now, being seated and teaching was very common and it was the custom of the Jewish teachers. Uh, They would be seated and oftentimes the hearer would be standing. So we would be exactly reversed tonight. You would be standing and I would be seated in the Jewish custom. Jesus often was seated when he preached and he is it's no different here. He is set. And when he was set or when he was seated, his disciples came unto him. Matthew 23, 2 tells us that the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. That tells us that was the custom of the Jewish teachers. So we need to be persuaded of this one truth. The Holy Spirit makes note of this. You know, oftentimes we pass over what seems to be to our human minds insignificant facts. The Holy Spirit thought it was important enough to identify Jesus in a seated position. Now oftentimes, unless you're preaching in an expositional fashion, this is something you totally ignore. You don't even think about the posture of the speaker, right? But this is important because of what we're going to learn about this particular sermon. So it is significant. The place is the mountaintop. The posture, he is seated. And it is, he is accommodating himself to the common manner of the day. Okay, so Jesus isn't doing something that is, is completely foreign to what people were used to. In this sermon, Christ clearly is going to pronounce the laws of his kingdom. Really what the Sermon on the Mount is about is about kingdom laws. It's about the laws of the kingdom and how those who are citizens of the kingdom ought to live. As I was reading this week and preparing, Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this sermon, they said it, would, it is, it is uh, beyond prideful to think that humans in their sinful nature will be able able to obey all of the kingdom requirements in this life. 
So as we set off for the Sermon on the Mount, if you're setting out with the idea that you're going to be 100% obedient in these kingdom requirements, you have already reached way beyond pride. But the point is going to be that we ought to desire to live as citizens of the kingdom. And we ought to live the way that Jesus proclaims. So we see here that Jesus is going to pronounce the laws of the kingdom and he's going to speak with authority. His authority is going to transcend even the most powerful of Jewish leaders. In other words, the things Jesus is going to say in the Sermon on the Mount, and you'll pardon the expression, is going to bury the authority of the Jewish leaders. In other words, he's going to speak at such a level that his authority is going to be, it's going to be remarked by the authority in which he speaks with. So we see that this posture is very important. He is seated just like the recognized Jewish leaders of the day were seated. But it's also symbolic. It's symbolic of Jesus Christ the King seated upon the throne of authority and upon the throne of God. It's symbolic of the judge upon the throne. He who will judge all man. And here most people would just simply say, well, Jesus just sat down on a rock and started talking. No, it's much more significant than that. And oftentimes we quickly and we hurry by other statements, but notice he says, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. Now we're going to talk about this in just a few moments about who the actual hearers and who the audience was, but let's jump ahead just briefly for a moment and notice it says, and he opened his mouth and taught them. This is also deeply significant. This is the Lord himself opening his mouth and teaching. Here, we see the Holy Spirit under the inspiration of the Spirit noting how Jesus spoke. He spoke in a natural way. He spoke in a careful way. He simply opened his mouth and articulated what needed to be said and he said it clearly. When you read through the Sermon on the Mount, and I would encourage you before we get there, in one sitting, pardon the pun, in one sitting, read the entire sermon all together. Start in chapter 5 and read all the way to the end. Just read it straight through. Don't read it the first time to try to gain a great understanding and, and don't fall into the, the pattern that I fall in trying to exposit every verse and every word as you're going through. Just read it through. And as you read it through, just kind of make mental notes of how many subjects Jesus is covering. And when you get to the end of, the, end of chapter 7 or the end where the sermon comes to an end, consider the question, ask yourself the question, did Jesus really leave anything out? Oftentimes people ask preachers, if you could listen to, if you could have listened to Jesus preach one sermon and heard him in person, which one would it have been? Most preachers say this one. Now that doesn't mean that other things that Jesus said wasn't more powerful, but many say, I would have loved to have been in that environment just to watch him expound so many of these truths. But he opens his mouth 
and he speaks. And he taught them. Imagine being taught by Jesus himself. Well, what did he speak? Well, when Jesus speaks, he speaks in his perfection, right? Everything Jesus speaks is truth. Everything he spoke means it was perfections. Perfections of what? Perfections of the kingdom. Perfections of the scripture. Perfection of the law. So the perfections of our Lord are going to be clearly seen in the expressions and the commands and the directives that he gives us throughout this sermon. In other words, when we come to something controversial in our society or we come controversial in our mind, Jesus speaks with authority and he pretty much settles the matter and says, this is the way it is. This is what you should do. This is what I think about this. Uh, This is how you ought to forgive. This is what you ought to do when tempted. This is what you ought to do about loving your enemies. Here's how you should handle murder. Here's how you should handle anger. Here's how you should give. Here's how you should pray. Here's how you should fast. Here's how you should think about treasures. Here's how you should handle anxiety and worry. Here's how you should handle being judged and judging. Here's how you should handle false prophets. Here's how you should consider salvation. The straight and the narrow. The wide Here's what you should think about rock and sand foundations. He covers just about everything you can think of. And everything he speaks, he speaks in his perfection. So far as the scripture tells us, from about the age of 12, we see Jesus maintaining what we would say he's up to about 30 years old. He's been mostly silent. Now, we saw him in, at 12 teaching in the temple and teaching the lawyers, if you will. But then it goes kind of quiet. But then at around age 30, Jesus begins to open his mouth and he begins to deliver these messages. In perfect submission to his father, the Lord Jesus waits until the hour which had been given to him. So the time had come with the Sermon on the Mount, the time had come for him to open his mouth and begin to speak about the laws of his kingdom. He speaks the laws of the kingdom and primarily he's speaking it, speaking them to citizens of his kingdom. Now, be careful of being too dogmatic in saying that there is no evangelistic flavor in the Sermon on the Mount. There is some. But primarily, Jesus is talking and speaking with people who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I do believe that he calls into question some who think they're part of the kingdom of heaven by giving the examples of false prophets and giving the example of the gates, the wide, the broad, the narrow. But he simply opens his mouth. He opens his mouth and speaks. It reminds us of a phrase and an expression the Apostle Paul makes in Ephesians 6, verses 18 and 19. 
We're picking up the second half of verse 18 in Ephesians 6. It says, Supplication for all saints and for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. When Paul spoke that in Ephesians, he was referring to a special kind of speech. In other words, when Paul said that, he said, I'm talking about something that is much more weighty than ordinary conversation. Be careful that when you read the Sermon on the Mount and we learn about the Sermon on the Mount, that this was just common conversational language. Jesus speaks with great weight and great authority because He's speaking about the laws of the kingdom. When Paul made mention of that, he speaks, he says, it's been, utterance has been given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly. So here, when Christ opens His mouth and teaches them, we are to understand that He spoke with freedom, He spoke with authority, He spoke with faithfulness and truth and boldness. And in some ways, this is some of the weightiest material that Jesus is going to deal with. It's the longest continuous sermon that Jesus gives that we're given in Scripture. It's one continuous sermon. And it's of great importance. So when Christ opens His mouth, what does He speak? He always speaks truth. He speaks truth regardless of the consequences. This is when we get to the end of the sermon. Alright, and I told you when you do this, consider what you've read. The end of the sermon in Matthew 7, verses 28 through 29, here was the end result. The people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The conclusion of the people at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus speaks differently than the scribes. He speaks with much more authority. He speaks with much more power. He speaks with much more liberty. The people were astonished. Next, I want us to consider who were the people to whom the Lord preached the sermon to. Now, if you want to really start a fight among people, start, start right there. Ask them who was the audience. Well, all we're told is in verse number 1 that after He was set, His disciples came unto Him. So the only audience we're certain of is that it was His disciples. Now, this doesn't mean it was just the twelve. There were many disciples in Jesus' day. There were some who were disciples in name only. There's disciples who were there following because they had watched Him heal. And then there were other disciples that were not one of the twelve that were there and they were followers. The difference of opinion has often been said that the sermon really applies only to one group, either the saved or the unsaved. I would caution us against taking that perspective. Like, I don't think we should look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, this is just for saved people. So if we're seated here one Wednesday evening, and we know, for example, there may be someone who's never repented and believed the gospel, we don't say, this isn't for you. Just like we would never do that with any scripture. We would never point at a scripture and say, this isn't for you, this isn't for you. No, we would proclaim it. So I think we've got to be careful about being dogmatic 
Now, there are people who take extreme positions on this. Some who simply say, uh, this is only believer's material. Personally, personally, I think after some study and consideration and prayer, I view this as a summary of the entire preaching ministry of Christ. In other words, it takes much of everything he said and it puts it in one continuous sermon. Now, I don't know about you, but if Jesus spoke it, I certainly want to pay attention to it. But I also want to guard against, and there is a, there is a teaching out there that ignores the New Testament except for the red letters. <laughs> there, there are red letter New Testament believers out there. It's a fascinating thought. I don't understand it, but it's fascinating. They ignore the whole New Testament except for the letters, the words in red in some Bibles that indicate Jesus speaking directly. I would say there's no way we can disregard the epistles of Paul. You cannot disregard the other things that are being said. But when Jesus is speaking, he is speaking at a level of authority that others could not speak. I also find that there are people that they draw very hard lines. Um, when you're first converted and you're first, I'm going to use the term on fire and have the zeal of the Lord on you. And I think all of us know what we're talking about. We start getting a little bit of knowledge and we start drawing very hard lines between what we think and what we believe. And we draw, we put these very hard walls between people and we say, listen, here's what I believe. And if you don't, you're, you must be unsaved. Or if you don't believe the way I believe, then there's something wrong. We, we can't fellowship. Now, I personally have had people question. They've taken hard lines out of the Sermon on the Mount. And because we saw it a little bit differently, they've looked at me and said, well, I, I just don't know how you can actually be a believer if you take that position. I'm going to tell you something. After you've been saved for a little while, the truth doesn't change but you start realizing that the way the Bible is laid out, the older we grow, the less we are quick to draw a hard, fast line in Scripture that simply says, listen, if you don't see it my way, then, then you're wrong. You know, when we grow in wisdom, that hard line nature that we take, it does soften some, not compromised. But we begin to realize that we drew hard lines in our immaturity. Now, there are, some, there are some things you can't compromise with. You can't compromise with sin. You can't compromise with the truths of, talk about adultery and murder and anger, and there's only one way to, to, there's only one way to salvation through Christ alone. I'm not talking about that. But it's an amazing thing that the more wisdom that we get and the longer that we're in Christ, the more we're in Scripture, the more we're in prayer, we certainly, we begin to say that you know, we don't just limit this application to a certain part or a certain group, or this is just for this type of person. But rather, and it's often done under the guise of I'm just rightly dividing the word. It's not been long ago that, a, and I don't do this anymore, and I'm, I'm glad I took this position. 
There was a time not too long ago when I thought it was a good idea to get into social media online theological discussions. I'm going to call them theological discussions. There is not a bigger waste of time on this planet. It is a waste of time. Now you can post things and you can post great verses and you can post great quotes, but if you think you're going to change someone's mind, and my worst arguments were not with unbelievers. My worst arguments were other people, other believers who were claiming that they were doing something right and I'm doing it wrong. Rightly dividing is the, is the, is the flamethrower. That's the flamethrower. And it happens, and someone will say, I took this position, and they'll say, you're not, I'm rightly dividing the word of truth. You're, you're uh, cutting it apart. You're not rightly dividing. I had, a, I had a, another pastor tell me that, and, and, and I don't do this anymore. I don't even get into a discussion anymore. One of the, it was one of the, one of the, the kids bought me a, a coffee cup this year that says comments are disabled. I really, really think that that's what I should do. I should just disable my comments on my social media page. That way I don't have to worry about it. You can't even comment on it. It's a, it's a great reminder. Be careful about just segmenting the Sermon on the Mount and said, oh, Jesus just meant the Jews here. Or Jesus just meant the Gentiles here. Or Jesus just meant the disciples here. Or Jesus just meant the church here. Be very on guard and beware of placing your own restrictions on what Jesus was talking about. I've, I've had people sit across from me who were more strict than Christ himself. Seriously. I mean, they took, a, they took a harder position than even the Bible did. And again, I'm, that's okay. But don't, don't proclaim that as the way that we ought to live because that's the stand that you take. So lastly, the, tonight, as well, by way of introduction, really, there, a careful study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John reveals this as a whole of Christ's ministry. And it'll help us approach the Sermon on the Mount. That first of all, the ministry of Christ, especially His preaching ministry, had a special application to the afflicted people of God. It was, it was aimed at people that were afflicted. But secondly, it also had a peculiar reference to His own disciples. In other words, when you read the sermon, you'll see... It's, it's aimed at people afflicted and a reference to the immediate disciples. But then thirdly, we will see that it has a general bearing upon all the people at large. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount, although it has these distinctive features of Christ's public ministry, the very first section of the sermon we'll start dealing with next week is referred to as the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are aimed at people who were afflicted in their souls. The next division is referred to people as his public servants. And we'll talk about that when we get there. But the third division of the sermon, the larger part of it, the, the widest part of the Sermon on the Mount is an exposition of the spirituality of the law and refuting false teachers. 
a large part of the sermon has to do with refuting false teachers and also the spirituality of the law. Which that means that a large part of this sermon was aimed at people in general. So let's be careful that we don't just dogmatically say this was just the disciples. You'll see the divisions when we get to them. Some of you may be familiar with the the name William Perkins. And he's a commentator of old. And he, he said on the Sermon on the Mount, this was his perspective. He says, it may justly be called the key of the whole Bible. For here Christ opens, opens the sum of the Old and New Testaments. Some of the topics that Jesus deals with, matter of fact, many of the subjects were things that were very clearly stated in the Old Testament, and now they're being shown in the New Testament. There is no disconnect between the Old and the New when you get to the Sermon on the Mount. Many people say, this is Jesus basically doing away with all the Old Testament. No, there's actually the connections between the two. It is the longest sermon. Jesus begins his public, he began his public ministry by preaching what? Repentance. He began his preaching ministry preaching repentance, and now he enlarges upon the subject of repentance and what repentance actually looks like. If true repentance takes place, you will see the fruit of that repentance. Kingdom citizens live the fruits of repentance. How we deal with one another. How should we view various subjects? Various things that happen in life. It is an intensely practical sermon. Again, Matthew Henry says, there is not much of the qualifications of Christianity, and in other words, the things to be believed, but it is wholly taken up with the agenda, the things to be done. For if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. Even Henry's perspective of this was with this primarily the Sermon on the Mount is not what to believe, but what to do. I think that's important. So that we're told at the beginning of chapter 5 that it was his disciples whom Christ taught here. It's equally clear from the closing verses of chapter 7 that this sermon was spoken with multitudes of people hearing. We've got to keep that in mind throughout this entire sermon that it wasn't just his disciples hearing this. Some have even said that while Jesus was giving this discourse, that people came and went. Some came to the mountaintop and listened and went away. So some heard just parts of what Jesus said. Others were there for the entirety of it all. But keep this in mind that it was within the hearing of multitudes of people. It contains much instruction for how we ought to live as believers, how we ought to live good, honest, and blessed life. We'll start dealing with that that word blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? Yet one of the most searching part of this is the spiritual nature of his kingdom and the character of people who are part of that kingdom. What does that look like? Jesus is going to give what the Pharisees and the scribes could never do. Through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus emphatically clears up and accurately gives the true meaning of the law. 
he gives the true meaning of the prophets. Because what had the Jewish leaders done? They had corrupted the purpose of the law and they had corrupted the purpose of the prophets. Jesus is going to clear all of that up in the Sermon on the Mount. So with that being said, that's our introduction. So next week, we'll start looking at the Beatitudes. And each one of them, each one of them is a, at least a mini-sermon, each one of them. They all begin with the common word, blessed. And we'll begin next week looking at the Beatitudes by what the word blessed means. It is an overused word in our society, overused word in our churches as to what blessed really means, especially with regard to the spiritual nature of it and the nature of kingdom citizens. So that's where we'll pick up next week. All right, let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer this evening. I appreciate you being here and trust that at least this introductory, introductory message uh, gets us off on the right foot as we begin a long journey uh, through the Sermon on the Mount, and I am looking forward to it, and I hope you are as well. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had, and Lord, I thank you for this sermon that we're getting ready to study together. And Lord, I know I've personally been through it before. I've taught through it before. But Lord, there are so many things and so many truths that we need to be reminded of. Some will be hearing it for the first time. Some will be hearing it for the third or fourth time. Who can tell? But Lord, I pray that you'll help us. Help us not to take any of these truths and these teachings for granted. And Lord, we can only imagine what it must have been like for our Lord to be seated upon that mountaintop and giving this great discourse. Father, help us as we study. Help us to already in our heart be willing to listen, ready to receive your word. Father, thank you for this evening. Lord, thank you for allowing us the privilege of being together to encourage one another. And Lord, we look forward to this Lord's day when we can come together again and worship in spirit and in truth. We ask now that you'll go with us as we leave this place. And it's in Christ's name and for his sake that I do pray. Amen. All right. Thank you so much. Lord bless you.